Prayerfully, that is the desire of our heart this morning, is that our soul would long for the Lord above all else. And truly, what a great reminder that is. I'm turning over this morning to Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter number 3, and we'll be looking at verses 16 through 19 this morning, and we'll consider for our subject today, because of unbelief, because of unbelief. When we hear God's voice, and we hear the sweetness of His voice, we realize that we are not being spoken to by any ordinary person or any ordinary voice. Uh, We are being spoken to by the Spirit of God who, according to Scripture, is speaking to us the great truths of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, uh, the Word of God who uh, spoke, He who is declared to be the Word, and the Savior that died for us, the Savior who loved us. When the Lord speaks, the heart must respond. The heart responds in either belief or unbelief. But when God speaks, the heart responds. Now, we may say today, my heart is not responding at all. I'm hearing the voice, I'm hearing you speak, I'm hearing the Word of God read, but I'm not responding. Every time God's Word goes forth, man responds. He responds in either an affirmative belief or a denying unbelief. But we all today are responding in one way or the other. The voice of God is very much the center of our entire existence. Why Does God even speak? Why does God give any time or effort to speaking to people at all? Our existence is dependent upon the Spirit of God dealing with us. Our very existence is dependent upon our spiritual understanding. Uh, We are not just flesh and blood. We are not just people who are here in human form. Uh, who uh, have physical needs and we have mental needs, emotional needs. Uh, Our greatest need today is an understanding of the spiritual existence in which we are. It is our spiritual existence is where all of our thoughts and all of our affections come from. Uh, What we really are is not material. What we really are is spiritual. There is a material aspect to us. We have no question about that. If there was not a material aspect, we would not be present in bodily form here. But our existence and our response to the Word is not a physical, material response. It is a spiritual response. We're not asking people to believe materially. We're not even asking people to believe necessarily physically. But when man responds, he is responding either spiritually in belief or he's responding spiritually in unbelief. Of course, the greatest joy we can know, the greatest experience we can have is to know that when God speaks to us, we respond with a heart that is in belief. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only remedy for our sinful condition. We realize every day we are still reminded we are sinners saved by the grace of God. We realize that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We believe that truth because that truth was spoken to us by the Spirit of God. You don't believe that because you read it in a magazine somewhere. You don't believe that because you read it on the internet somewhere. You believe that because the Spirit of God, when He spoke, you believed. And you go on believing. Belief is not a one-time belief. It is a continuous belief that is strengthened with, with time and strengthened every time we hear the voice of God. God's voice is meant to soften the heart, but we also know scripturally that God's voice also hardens the heart. The same voice that softens is the same voice that can harden the heart. We see an example of that in Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh uh, denied and had a heart of unbelief, and because of his unbelief, it says his heart was hardened. He not only hardened his own heart, but God hardened his heart. The very purpose of God's Word is to make our hearts tender. Uh, I'm not in the physical realm. I don't probably have to tell many of you. uh, Life can make your heart and make you very hardened. 
I don't think a lot of us today realize how hardened we really are. Uh, we're hardened by affliction. We're hardened by situations, circumstances, hurts, and people who betrayals. We're, are, we become hardened to things to where we could wake up one day and we look and they say, where did my tenderness go? I remember when I used to be sensitive and tender to these things, and it's almost as if I have put on this extremely hard shell that seemingly just can't be broken. It happens to us in the material, physical realm. And that's a dangerous thing. But it's more dangerous to actually be hardened spiritually, to where your heart becomes hardened to the spiritual truths in which are being proclaimed. To where the word of God now just seems to be a nuisance to you. It seems to be something that I don't really need this. Or how is this going to help me in my day-to-day life when the alarm goes off at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning? What good is God? But the greatest treasure we have is knowing that Christ lives within us through the Spirit. I don't ever want to get to the place where I don't hear the voice of God. I don't ever want to get to the place where the voice of God now becomes something that doesn't soften my heart, but now it hardens my heart. And again, we've got to be very careful that we understand the purpose of the divine word. When we believe God's word, when we believe what God has said, it always begins with an acknowledgement that we're sinners. It begins with an acknowledgement that we are so far from what God requires. It makes us adore and worship God more that he would even consider granting us mercy. That he would even look our direction and even look at us and say, I'm going to extend the mercy of my son, even though I know what you've done and I know who you are and I know what you're still doing and I know what you're still thinking and I know you're still having impure thoughts. I'm going to extend my mercy to you. Not because you deserve it, but out of my great love, I'm going to extend this to you. We know that God has softened our hearts when we acknowledge our sin, we adore God's mercy, but we also know that our hearts are still tender and receptive to God's word when we desire fellowship with God. We desire fellowship with God's people. We see Jesus who came to die for us. He saved us. He washed us from head to toe. He's given us salvation. Those truths keep your heart tender. For the believer today, those thoughts continually soften your heart and say, these are indeed precious truths. You and I are in possession of the greatest truth possible to know that God lives within us and he only lives within us because the voice of God, when it came to us, we responded in belief. Repentance continues to make our heart softer. Our prayer, our hope of that which is to come, these things make us tender to God. And I would ask us before we even begin any further this morning, is your heart today tender towards belief or hardened towards unbelief? I believe every heart here today is in one of those two directions. It's either tender today or it's hardened. It's really not in between. It's, it's either soft or it's hard. It's in, it, it is not a, a gray area. And yet, we see in our text this morning, the writer of Hebrews, as he continues this thought about the importance of belief. If you look with me at Hebrews 3, in verse 16, he says, For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Now, provoking God is a sign of a hard heart. Some, when they did hear, notice the connection. When they heard, they provoked. Howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. In other words, not all provoked God. There were some that heard and believed, but there were others who heard and instead of belief, they provoked. But with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. 
I'll say more about this, but I want you to notice it says they could not enter in. It doesn't say they would not. It says they could not. There is a world of difference between would and could. As a matter of fact, there is a, a, an opposition between these two things about being willing and cannot. It's the difference between can I and may I. When you ask those questions, those are two different questions. Right? The old illustration of a child to a mother. Can I go outside? Well, that's not the proper question. You're asking for my permission. The correct, the correct question is, may I go outside? Of course you can. You're capable of going outside. But the question isn't can you, it's may you. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that there reached a point in time when that heart became so hardened, it was no longer a matter of would you, you cannot enter in. Because of unbelief, the hardened heart had become so hardened that it was now impossible for it ever to be softened to the place where it would enter into this rest in which God was so clearly demonstrating. Really, in these verses today, these, these verses lead up to verse 19, which we just dealt with. These verses explain why Israel or why the children of Israel were shut out of the land of promise. And it stands today as a severe admonition and a warning to, to us today who sit here comfortable in the day of clear mercy and grace. It's a warning to do not let happen to you what happened to the children of Israel. This is not just a story to say, what a sad ending to the children of Israel who were committed unto them. We learned again this morning, Romans 3, were committed unto them the oracles of God. The Jews had the first things. They should have fully understood what they were in possession of. So verse number 16, as we kind of go through these verses, this, we'll talk about what these questions and we'll give you the answers. They're, they are searching questions in verse number 16. Notice here this first one, the searching question of unbelief. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. And in the first part of verse 17, but with whom was he grieved? In other words, who was it that heard and yet stayed rebellious and provoked the Lord? Who were they? Which ones were they? Now, in order to clarify that it was not everybody who provoked, the writer says, howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt provoked God. It wasn't all of them. Now, we do know from your study of scriptures that it was very, very few. If on the very, very conservative biblical side, the, the most extreme conservative would say there were only two that came out. That's what is estimated to have been well over 600,000 people who actually entered in to the promised land. How many of those 600,000 actually were part of the original that came through the Red Sea? How many of them actually witnessed God's miracles? How many actually saw his wondrous works? And yet when they got into the wilderness and wandered for 40 years, how many of them actually went into the land of promise? It is these provokers in which the writer has in mind here. The writer here begins to describe the kind of people who sinned in the provocation. His purpose here is to make mention of these people as evidence for watchfulness. One of the things we are most afraid to confront, I believe, is we are most afraid to confront our own heart. Your own heart is a very scary thing to confront. As a matter of fact, you have an easier time confronting the person that you see the face in the mirror than you actually do confronting your heart. Your face, you can see the blemishes. You can see the problems. You can see what's there that wasn't there the day before or what's there now that didn't used to be and how did that get there. You can see the blemishes. 
You can confront the problem by doing all sorts of things, like maybe covering it up, trying to hide it. You can do lots of things to say, I see the blemish on my face. But here's the problem with confronting your heart. They're not so obvious. It's not so obvious when you have a little bit of unbelief that starts to rise up. It's difficult to confront when you actually could be seated in a church service like this and say, I'm not really sure I believe this. I'm not really sure I believe what was said this morning. Now, that's a scary confrontation. When you have to confront what appears to be a heart that is hardening instead of growing more tender. Remember, I told you, life, life you live long enough, and our young people, our very young people here, sadly, they're going to learn this over the time. Life has a very strange way of hardening you if you're not real careful about guarding yourself and guarding your heart and guarding everything about you because you, you will grow cynical, you will grow hardened about everything. And it doesn't happen overnight. It takes some time. Same way with a spiritually hard heart. It begins with just a little doubt creeping in. And do I really believe that? Do I really... Am, am, I, am I really... Am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? The writer uses the word provoke. It wasn't that they didn't hear. They heard and in response, they provoked God to their own destruction. They provoked God to their own judgment. The solemn fact here is that of those 600,000 some men who left Egypt, we're only told specifically about Caleb and Joshua going in. Now that word provoke, it's a, it's a word that is not found often in the scripture, but that word provoke also has the idea or the meaning of vexing God. And it was because they were in contempt of God's word. They didn't want to hear God's word. They showed that by the contempt of God's word, they were not really of God. Listen, it is impossible for you to call yourself a believer and to hold God's word in contempt and to say, I really don't, I don't appreciate God's word. I don't, I don't really desire to hear God's word proclaimed. I, I could, I could live, I could take it or leave it, but I'm, I'm just glad I'm saved. That's an impossibility, sir. That's an impossibility, ma'am. It's impossible for you to say, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't really go for all that Bible stuff. But I'm glad I'm saved. I'm glad I prayed that prayer. I sure hope that's not what you're banking on. Because you're not going to hold God's word in contempt and you're not going to say, I don't want God's word. You're going to want God's word that it's like your necessary food, like David said. And he said, I want this more than I want my physical needs met. See, I'm convinced we're afraid to actually confront our own hearts because we're afraid of what we might actually see. Because we have learned all the Christian vernacular, we've learned all the vocabulary, we've learned all the right things to say, and yet your heart can be as hard as stone today, and yet you say, but I'm glad I'm saved. Because sadly, we've put too much, on, we've put too much stock in our own doings for our own salvation. God very clearly declares that there are those who claim to be of God, but Jesus himself, even as he was dealing with the Pharisees, if uh, we can look at a familiar portion of Scripture in John chapter 8, verse number 40, we'll begin in verse 44. Jesus, as he's uh, talking to uh, the Pharisees, and he has just gone through how he is the light of the world, and he's having a conversation with the Pharisees who say that, uh, we are of Abraham's seed, and because we're of Abraham's seed, uh, then uh, we're, we're secure. Uh, it, it look with me at um, in verse 36 of John 8. Uh, Jesus says, If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed. Now remember, the Pharisees were trusting in their genealogy. They were trusting in their family tree. But their hearts were as far from God as they could possibly be. But they were convinced 
They were God's people. Notice how Jesus deals with them. I know that you're Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. Uh, he, if Jesus is putting these Pharisees in their place, said, I'll grant you. You're Abraham's seed, there's no doubt. But my word has no place in you. I don't exist within you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. Now Jesus is going somewhere with this, and this is a stinging accusation. There, there aren't many Christians today that would dare make this accusation to another person because we live in a don't-you-dare-offend-me society. Don't you, don't you spiritually offend me. Folks, you're never coming to Christ until you're spiritually offended. This watered-down gospel stuff that says all you got to do is just one, two, three, repeat after me. You're good. You're in heaven. Go about your merry way. Listen. The Word of God is going to offend your heart. It's going to offend you because it's going to send you to a place. It's going to determine and tell you exactly who you are. And I would submit to you today, if you think you're in God and you've never been offended at your own sin before a holy God, you really need to examine yourself and be sure you're in the faith at all. Because until you come to the understanding that I have offended a holy God and that there is nothing within me. Jesus gives a stinging accusation to the religious leaders of the day. I don't think we fully understand how much the Pharisees were admired and how much they were looked upon as being the spiritual experts. If you would have lived in that day and age, you wouldn't have gone and seen Jesus. You would have gone and saw the Pharisees. You would have called the Pharisee up and said, can I have a meeting with you? I want to talk about the things of God with you. Jesus clearly demonstrates that they do not even know him. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If you were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. They were convinced that God is our father. And Jesus now goes into the let's water down the message of the modern society because we don't want to offend anybody. That's what Jesus does, right? Not even close. Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, you would love me. You would love me. The, the, the Pharisees' hatred was so intense toward Jesus, there was nothing they loved about him at all, yet they were convinced, God's our Father. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Here's where he really waters it down. Ye are of your father, the devil. Now, if you think that wasn't offensive to a Pharisee, you don't know your Bible. That was one of the most offensive things they could say, is that your father is the devil. Your father's not God. The lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own and he is, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Here it is. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. You realize that the unbeliever today is not of God. No, I know that's not the, that's not the politically correct version of the gospel today. We wouldn't dare tell them that if they're not in the faith, if they're not part of God, that they are not of God Yet that's how Jesus declared. Matter of fact, those who are not in the faith are declared to be the enemies of God. That's not popular preaching anymore. But there was a time and an age when that's all you would ever hear is that if you are not in Christ, you are the enemy of God. 
And it's because of unbelief. This provoking that the writer of Hebrews was talking about, beware provoking God by your own obstinate, hardened heart. To believe not or to deny the gospel, the gospel becomes, as Peter, or as Paul said, a savor of death unto death. But the gospel for those who believe is light and it's life. It's life-giving. But to believe not, it brings death. So there's the searching question of unbelief. Verse 17, back in our text in Hebrews, tells us this response. What is the sinful response of unbelief? What does it look like? But with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned? Now notice the imagery here. Whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? Who was God grieved with? Was it not those who sinned by murmuring and rebelling? Who the Bible describes they didn't just die? I'm not sure what your version might say. This is the King James Version that says their carcasses fell in the wilderness. The imagery there is extremely powerful. There's a whole lot of words we could have used. We could have said they ceased to exist. They died. There's something about the reality of what happened to these people. Their carcasses fell in the wilderness. He was grieved with them for 40 years. This being put in the form of a question was designed to stir up the conscience of those who would read, even us. Who was it that God was grieved with? He was grieved with those who had sinned and those whose carcasses fell in the wilderness. He doesn't just say they died, but that they fell. This principle, one commentator put it this way, but their carcasses fell, it illustrates contempt and indignation. In other words, what God was doing was using people as an example to show his judgment. He's using them as an example. Much like he used Pharaoh as an example. Is it amazing? So many people say, well, it sure wasn't, it sure wasn't fair to Pharaoh that he never had a chance to believe. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. It talks about he hardened his own heart. God used him to demonstrate his glory. He demonstrated to use it. But it also shows us just the indignation that God views the sin of unbelief and how he views it. What is the end? What is the purpose in us reading about what's being reported here? That we should take heed that we don't fall after the same example. Hebrews 4.11, when we get to that chapter, it says, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. If you sit here today and you think, this can't happen to me. Pardon the language. My carcass would never fall in the wilderness. Are you certain of that? Are you certain that it's Christ only? John Owen just simply said, this is an example in the fall and punishment of unbelievers. That illustrates so clearly what the fall and punishment of an unbeliever looks like. Their carcasses fell in the wilderness. I had heard it taught to me, and I'm just giving this as an example I have heard it, it was taught to me at one time in my life that yes, a bunch of people died, but since they were all God's people, they all went to heaven. Is that what the Bible teaches, that they all went to heaven? It's the easy way to consider it. Yes, they all made a mistake, so their carcasses fell in the wilderness, but at least they're all in glory. That's not the, that doesn't seem to be the intent that the writer of Hebrews is writing with. He's writing with this, that this is a reality of what unbelief does. This wasn't just about entering into the promised land of Canaan. There was a spiritual element here, of course. So what is the warning? We're given the, the great warning in verse 18. And to whom swear he that should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. There's this solemn warning now that is given. So who did God swear that they would not enter into his rest? 
If God says, you will not enter into my rest, and then you later into his rest, you later enter into his rest, you make God a liar. I want you to remember that. If God says, you will not, and then you do, God did something, he changed his mind or something happened along the line. He says, you will not enter into my rest. Who was it? The same people who fell because of unbelief. They should not enter into his rest. Who was it? But to them that believeth not. Having reminding, reminded the Hebrews in these previous verses that sin was the cause of Israel's destruction, he now specifies the very character of sin which is our subject, unbelief. The order in what's being given here is extremely significant. How this is playing out. The way that the, 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 the final you will not enter into my rest began was by first not hearkening to his voice. I should hearken to God's voice every time I hear it. Every time I hear it. How do I hear God's voice? Audibly? No. I hear it through the Word. We have all sat in situations like this. We've sat in either this building or we've sat in another building. We've sat there as children. We've sat there as older adults. We've sat and we've sat and we've sat and we've had time after time after time when the prompting of God and we didn't hearken to it. We just simply said, that's not important enough. That's not something I need to deal with. I got more important things to do. We just simply kind of pushed it to the back. Beware of not hearkening to the voice of God. Listen, if you're sitting in your private devotions that you just set out in the morning, I, I don't mean disrespect by this, and please take this the right way. You're just sitting out and it's your morning routine that you just want to get in your devotional time and you want to have your nice cup of coffee there and you want it piping hot and you just love that time with God. Look, I'm encouraging that and you should do that. But I'm telling you, if you get into a spirit of conviction while you're doing that soft, comfortable, fluffy devotional and the spirit of God gets a hold of you, don't ignore it. It might even be a passage that doesn't even make sense. Why is the Spirit of God dealing with me today? This was supposed to be a passage that's supposed to just make me feel good today. The Spirit of God is not hindered by what part of His Word is being read. I know people, I know people have told me that there are certain parts of the Bible I just avoid that because I know it's going to bring me under conviction if I read it. You, you think God can't bring you under conviction by reading Chronicles? Well, no, that's just a bunch of names. So you think God's limited by that? You think God can't speak to a sinful heart through the Spirit reading through the Chronicles? This is how He's speaking to us because He's not going to speak to you audibly. I always have to clarify with people when they say, well, God spoke to me today. I said, how did He speak to you? And if you tell me He spoke audibly, I'm immediately saying, okay, let's, let's, let's rewind here and start over. But if He's speaking to you, He's speaking to you through His Word. I'm convinced every time the Word of God is actually preached and Scripture is read, that it always, that God's Word is always speaking to us. And how many times have we left church and said, I didn't get anything out of that message today? The problem is not with God's Word. The problem is not with the preacher not being eloquent enough. He's not a, he's not a gifted speaker. That's not the problem. How did God speak to the nation of Israel? He used Moses. And every time Moses opened his mouth, the people would say this, well, who's Mo why is Moses going to be in charge? Even Miriam was the same way. She's, well, why does Moses get to do all this? We really have to listen to Moses. Moses was God's mouthpiece for the word of God to be given. And they said, we're not going to hearken to that. We're not going to listen. So the crowd that comes in and says, what is this angry God of the Old Testament? What's he, what's he so mad about? Well, that's the wrong question. The order is significant here because it was God's voice that they would not hearken to. In consequence, because they would not hearken to the voice of God, their heart became hardened. Sadly, we have people in our stripes who say, well, it's only God that hardens the heart. Man doesn't have anything to do with hardening his own heart. It's all God. You're, still, you're misunderstanding Scripture. We are still responsible for what we hear and what we do with it. 
God's voice being ignored led to a hardened heart. The result of a hardened heart is unbelief. What is the end result? Unbelief results in destruction. The phrase believe not can also be translated or rendered obeyed not. Paul wrote something about this in Romans 2, about this principle of believing not has reference to obeying not, obeying the voice. Romans 2 verse 8, this this contains a number of things about how God judges. But notice what it says. Paul, as he's writing about these principles, he says, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. For there is no respect of persons with God. It is all about believing is obeying. We've said this often. The gospel message to repent and believe is a command. The reason man thinks his free will is what's the ultimate determining factor is because we've made it that way. We've, we've put all the control in man to say, listen, this isn't a command. We just want you to consider whether or not Jesus is for you or not. Does Jesus fit into your life's plan? And folks, if you think people don't think this way, you're not, you're not listening to what people say. They want a God who fits into their plan and does not disrupt what they're comfortable with. I will take Jesus as long as he doesn't interfere with the other things I got going on in my life. I'll take Jesus as long as it doesn't interfere with my job, doesn't interfere with my family, doesn't interfere. I'll take Jesus on my terms. And yet, how many things does God speak to us about? We know what we need to do. We know how we need to respond. And that little bit of a hard heart comes up into us and they say, but I just don't want to, God. Sometimes I've had to be brutally honest with myself when I look at that face in the mirror and know my heart isn't right. And I say, you know the reason I'm not responding? Here's a simple reason. Because I don't want to. And that's my only answer. I don't want to. There's no excuses. There's no blame shifting. It's not my wife's fault. It's not my kid's fault. It's not my church's fault. It's not my work fault. I don't want to. And then I start to accuse God of meddling in the things of my life that are already secure and comfortable. God, don't touch that part of my life. That's comfortable. I hope you all know what I'm saying. I I don't want God messing in the parts of my life that I just, I know those parts. He doesn't just want some little part of us. The unbelief starts in these very small areas of our life, and they're things that are the untouchable parts of our life. As if we're somehow negotiating with God. God, I'll get to have this part if you give me this. God's not a respecter of persons. He's not, he's not bartering with you. It's, it's disobedience. To ignore the command of repent and believe is disobedience. In either case, a hardened heart is the result of a refusal to hear and to heed God's voice. So that no man is damned by God ultimately, they damn themselves. Everybody wants to blame God for everything. Why was God so cruel to the children of Israel? Why did they have such hardened hearts? Why do we have such hardened hearts? In the last part of these verses in Hebrews, we see the summary of this entire matter. He, he wraps, wraps this up. And again, sometimes chapter divisions are unfortunate because it's almost, again, like I say, it's like almost next week when we get into chapter 4 that the thought stops. These are all connected thoughts. But for our, for our message this morning, but notice he says, but to them that believe not, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They were not able to enter into this place of rest because of unbelief. 
They were not willing to believe God. They were not willing to trust God. They were not willing to rely on God. So unbelief shut them out. I often hear people say, well, if God will just make me willing to believe, then I'll believe. You've got it backwards. Romans chapter 4, verse number 20, Paul dealt with this principle. He gave the, he gave the example of Abraham and Sarah. And of course, verse 19 of Romans 4, it says, with regard to Abraham, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. When he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. What was Abraham persuaded, fully persuaded of? That God was able to perform exactly what he had promised to perform. You realize you and I have more understanding and more ability to see God's mercy and grace and truth than Abraham ever had. We're held more accountable for what we hear. Now, you can disagree with that statement. He did not have a copy of the Word. He didn't have those things. He was fully persuaded. Did it mean Abraham always did right? No. Look at the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Look what that resulted in when they, for a moment, they laughed and said, how is Sarah going to have a child? And Abraham and Sarah takes, him and takes the matter into their own hands. And they say, I'll show what we'll do. Yes, God promised us an heir. Yes, God promised me a son. But he's not coming through, so we'll take matters into our own hands. And Ishmael is born. And you see the conflict of the Middle East playing out every single day because of that decision. That decision was not God's fault. That was Abraham in a moment of unbelief. He and Sarah having a conversation decide, here's a good idea. Let's just take matters into our own hands. Because they had a moment of unbelief. Folks, there are times in our life we have moments of unbelief where we, a little bit of doubt creeps in and we start saying, is God really able? Am I really fully persuaded that God alone is able to save me through Jesus Christ alone? Am I really fully persuaded that God is going to do everything he's promised to do? Or do I let life circumstances get in the way and start clouding that belief? It goes on and he says, now was he able to perform? Look at this. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him. Don't blame your condition on God. Believe on him. Repent of your sins and believe on God. Believe in Christ. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. They were not willing to believe. They were not willing to trust. We want to talk about, well, you don't have any, that church over there talked about the doctrines of grace. You, man doesn't have any free will at all. Again, you don't understand what you're even saying. Man has a responsibility to respond to God. Every one of us has a responsibility to respond to God today. And that's not demonstrated by how many people come to an altar. That's not, that's not what the ultimate goal is. The ultimate goal, I think, is even more confrontational, is to deal with it yourself. I can give the impression by coming forward, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I've seen that happen too many times where... I want other people to see, well, here's where I really am. Look, I'm more afraid of dealing with myself in private than I am dealing with myself in front of you. Do you all know what I mean by that? I'm scared of me by myself. You know why? Because I'm like you. I know all the outward right things to do. I know the right things to say. I know what's acceptable. I know what's not acceptable. What I can't really... What scares me the most is actually having to confront my own true heart and actually look myself in the mirror and say, you know what? I'm actually telling God I don't want to. My stubborn, rebellious, depraved heart that has been saved by the grace of God but yet has moments 
where it still wants to go back to unbelief. I don't want to be bothered with God. I don't want to be bothered by His rules and His commandments. Where is that coming from? It's not coming from God. The nation of Israel had every reason to trust God after He took care of them. And a few days of inconvenience on the other side, and look what they did. They murmured, they complained. His works didn't matter anymore. We see they could not enter in because of unbelief. The writer here is not singling out how many, how many different sins, just hypothetically, could God have singled out with the nation of Israel? He could have singled out the making and worshiping the golden calf. He doesn't say that was the reason. He doesn't bring the, even some of the most flagrant transgressions before us. There's a lot of things with the nation of Israel we could say, well, the reason God, these fearful sins that he could have done, but God is pointing to us that there's one sin that's greater than every other sin. It's unbelief. It's unbelief. It's that sin in which everything, we are saved by faith, you are lost through unbelief. The heart is purified by faith. The heart is hardened by unbelief. We know faith is a gift of God. It brings us nigh to God. Unbelief in its purest definition is a departure from God. There is no sin. There is no sin. Listen to me. There is no sin so great that it cannot find pardon except for unbelief. That's why Paul the murderer is still in glory today. That's why David the adulterer is still in glory today. Because they still ultimately believed. These were not perfect men. There are people who've told me, I can never come to faith in Christ because you don't know what I've done. That doesn't matter. It's what will you do with Christ? What do you think of Christ today? Do you believe on Him? The application of this whole passage is to point us to the case of these Hebrews who were beginning to waver. He had to remind them over and over again about where their faith was, how they stood. He had to remind them about what happened to their fathers. He had to remind them this season of unbelief will come. And he's telling them, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. True unbelief departs from the living God. True unbelief departs from the living God. Unbelief is a distrust in God, in His power, His providence. This very instance produced and written by the writer and the inspiration of the Spirit shows just how evil the nature of unbelief can be and the sad effects from it. What's the point to deter you and I from unbelief? Someone might say, there's nothing I can do to leave here and be a believer. You can obey the commandment to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, what if God turns me away? He will never turn anyone away who repents and believes the gospel. Don't believe the lie that says God's looking for some yellow stripe on your back to see if you're one of the elect. No. Repent and believe the gospel and come to Christ. He will not turn you away. But if you walk out and you've heard it again and you hear it again and you hear it again and you walk out an unbeliever, it's not because God is at fault. It's because you refuse to believe. So preacher, it's hard words to hear. It's hard words for all of us to hear. As a believer today, we're not off the hook. You may be a believer. You may be in Christ. You know that that is your hope and your assurance. But your heart's getting hard about things. You are not guaranteed not having a hardened heart towards things just because you're in Christ. We can become very hard to the things around us. It's the great sin of mankind is unbelief. The sin of unbelief shuts up the heart of God and it shuts up the gates of heaven. I love how Matthew Henry puts this. I'm just going to read this and we'll finish with this. He says, unbelief with rebellion, which is the consequence of it, is the great damning sin of the world. 
especially of those who have a revelation of the mind and will of God, this sin shuts up the heart of God, shuts up the gate of heaven against them. It lays them under the wrath and curse of God and leaves them there so that in truth and justice to himself, he is obliged to cast them off forever. Here's my great fear. Preachers like Matthew Henry would get thrown out of churches today. They'd get thrown out. That's too harsh. That's, this, is, this is not what we came to church for. They were speaking truth. Truth that the sinful heart doesn't like. But it's truth. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled by the truths of this passage and Lord, how you have left it here and preserved it for our admonition. It would have been within your very rights as God to hide it from us, to keep your word from us, and to let us simply live and then die in our sin, be sent to hell and be there forever. We've given you no reason, no purpose for you to come unto us and to extend your mercy and grace to us, and yet you have. May we respond today with a heart of belief. May we realize just how prevalent unbelief is. I pray that it would not get a foothold in our life, that if we sit here today as unbelievers, that we would come to the understanding through the spirit of our need of Christ and we would repent and believe and be gloriously converted. But I pray for other believers here today, Lord, who maybe through life, maybe through choices, through decisions they've made, their heart is growing cold. And maybe even in ways they're considering, is this all worth it? Lord, I do pray that you would bring Bring us to conviction where need be. Help us to not hold this life so dear to us that we fail to hearken and listen to the call of God. That we don't ignore it, but that we are willing to be yielded to your purposes and your plan for our life. Lord, we give all these things over to you because we know we can do nothing without you, but all things are possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want to conclude with the hymn on 387. This song just encourages me every time we sing it. He will hold me fast. 300, I'm sorry, 388. 388.